Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Well, hello. I'm Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Well, don't we just welcome you all here to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, your exercise regime is is push, you're, you're pushing your boundaries. Are you training for something? You came in with your gym bag. And I thought maybe you had just summited. It's not a gym bag. No, it's not a gym bag. I am. I am heading to New York from here. Oh, you're fancy. Yes, but you were exercising. I walked a mile, one point four miles, on the treadmill before coming here. And how's is, and I just didn't change. Are you ramping up into a new um, exercise I have, regime? I don't think I have ever trained for anything in my life, and I don't plan to start now. So is that? But are you holding at a baseline of one point four miles? Is this where, uh, where no, are you in your the fitness? All, this is all I had time for. Where are um, you in your fitness and uh, wellness journey? I try to, you know, just at least get my steps in. Okay. Not well, be like completely sedentary. You'll you'll find it hard to believe, but I'm working on the other end. I'm I'm guarding my sedentariness. I really miss. Oh. I'm a world class sitter, and you know I've been too busy lately and haven't had as much time to sit around as I like. So. Hardest, hardest hit. I would love to sit around all the time, but I start feeling terrible. Well, you could just have to work through it. Those are that's to, <laughs> to achieve to achieve it. your sitting goals. You've got to, yeah. you, you know, when when your feet go numb and you start to feel bad, you've got to just push through. I, I believe that you can do it. I believe that you can do it. Chris. Yes. Should we hit our front page? Let's do it. Okay. Last week, of course, we talked all about the fourth Republican presidential debate. Yes, quite so. From Tuscaloosa. Who was uh, moderating that? And I don't know. And I can't we, I think, mentioned that it would be the last RNC sanctioned, sanctioned debate. Yes. But CNN announced shortly thereafter that they planned to host two more um, in January. And it does appear, it doesn't appear that. All of the candidates are eager to participate. Nikki Haley being cagey. Yes. yes. So Ron DeSantis very much wants to attend these. Axios is reporting that, you know, DeSantis is in for these non-sanctioned debates. But Nikki Haley doesn't appear, you know, is uh, jumping in with both feet. So Axios reports the final GOP presidential debate before the Iowa caucuses may not happen as former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley hasn't committed to participating and Vivek Ramaswamy and former Governor Chris Christie aren't on pace to qualify. Um, and it's interesting. I saw DeSantis um, saying on Twitter this morning um, that he thought the debate between that his debate with Gavin Newsom hosted by moderated by Sean Hannity was the most substantive debate of the cycle. And saying Who said that DeSantis. Well, with, he and, was sucking up. So, yeah. No, but he was urging Hannity to moderate Another debate either between DeSantis and Trump or between DeSantis and Nikki Haley. So my takeaway from that was, of course, that DeSantis wants to do as many debates as possible, have as much exposure as possible. And my understanding privately as well is that Nikki Haley, you know, doesn't want to do 2000 more debates. 
So she's being cagey about CNN debate. Now, ABC has a debate that they say they're going to hold in New Hampshire, New Hampshire, sorry, in the same location as CNN says they're going to have a debate. And they're going to just a couple days before in Manchester at St. Anselm College. And the ABC and, and CNN are sort of on a collision course here because obviously DeSantis is taking the approach that says, I'll do I'll do anything. Now, ABC, Chris Christie was an ABC News contributor, and he's still, as of this recording, in the presidential race, though the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, gave the nod to Nikki Haley. Yes. And we see DeSantis, Iowa, Haley, New Hampshire here, of course, only talking about second places. But the the question about which, if either of the two debates, the CNN debate or the ABC News debate, will really take place and who will really participate. The problem, as you now know from having participated in the making of a debate, if you say you're going to hold a debate, so let's say ABC, not, not let's say, so ABC said, we're going to have a debate. And CNN says, well, we're going to have, we're also going to have a debate. If Nikki Haley, let's say Nikki Haley doesn't show, right? Are you going to do a... Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie debate? Is ABC News really going to block out national coverage for an evening for a Ronnie D, Chris Christie debate? So you have to be you have to be a credible threat that you'll do it or otherwise, what's the motivation for the other candidates? On the other hand, how are you going to say that, you know, Sex Island or whatever ABC shows on a on a given weeknight is not going to air so that you can show the fourth and fifth place candidates for the New Hampshire presidential primary on America's screens. It's this is there is a lot of brinksmanship that will that will go on around this in the next few weeks. I don't think I mean, all three of these debates are not going to happen. Maybe one of them happens, but I don't imagine all three of these debates are going to happen. Well, Haley doesn't have a ton of motivation to go to Iowa. Uh, I was just in Iowa doing focus groups for News Nation. And, you know, Haley is obviously pushing her chips in on New Hampshire. What does she want to go out to Iowa? I mean, what what I heard from these folks and what was reflected in the Des Moines Register poll that came out after your debate, people didn't think Nikki Haley did a good job, right? She had an okay first hour and then under the... She kind of disappeared into the, you know, background. Under And so she had a good approach was to try to rise above, which worked for a while, but then she seemed a little listless in the second hour. And I don't know what her motivation for continuing to go out there and take a beating. I mean, if Vivek Ramaswamy's not on the stage and Christie's not on the stage and it's just her and DeSantis. Well, let me ask you a question. If DeSantis basically says, Nikki Haley, you're chicken. You won't debate me. I'll debate you anywhere, anytime. That does become hard for her to refuse, right? Uh, she can refuse Sean Hannity. But I don't know that she can refuse CNN and ABC and 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 mainstream. I think she I still don't think she needs to do all of them. Right. I mean, these are two CNN debates and one ABC debate. It's just a lot of debates in yeah. a short period of time, which is why I think she'll do. I think they'll do one more. I think I, one of these will happen. I think the debate about debates is going to be very interesting. What do we have next? Well, here? what we have next is we have the answer to a question that I had. So the United States House of Representatives this week lightly impeached Joe Biden, mild to medium impeachment in the form of an impeachment inquiry before they left town. 
And on the day of that impeachment inquiry, Hunter Biden came to the Congress in person, came to the United States Capitol in person to decline to testify privately before the, I guess, the House Oversight Committee. And it was so stupid and so selfish and so bad and so unkind to his father and so and so so rotten all the way through. I thought, what preposterous person would have given this advice to Hunter Biden? Which 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 absolute goofus would have helped Hunter Biden do this? I can't believe that his lawyer, Abby Lowell, who is a pit bull and famous for going hot and hard, but I thought Surely Abby Lowell's smarter than that. And then Politico gave me the answer, Eliana Johnson. And you know who it was? Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell. Because who else, who better to to captain your media ship, to be your to be your media advisor than the California Democrat who has become a punchline and a foil for Republicans throughout his career? He is like a and I don't mean this in the gross part. He is like a poor man's Anthony Weiner. He's like the he's the TJ Maxx Anthony Weiner. Likes to stir up conflict with Republicans and and create media controversies and get attention. He's a budget shift. He's a he's a poor man's Weiner. And he gave Hunter Biden the idea that what would be really helpful would be to get roadblock television coverage talking about why he's not testifying and why he's the real victim here. It was it was a wow. I, I have to say I sat in the studio watching it and it was a wow for me. It was galling. And I'm just trying to pull up the transcript. But he uh, Hunter Biden said he is proud of his attempts to forge global business relationships. He's proud. Okay? He did it. He was forging. He was forging. He was um, bringing people together. It was galling. It and would... then, you know, who who is he to defy the subpoena? Well, you're, you're allowed to defy the subpoena. You take the risks. People defy subpoenas. People defy subpoenas. But he, what does he owe his dad? What does Hunter Biden owe his dad? Stay the hell out of the limelight. I mean. My favorite moment, maybe we can find it. Oh, by the way, we should tell America. Colin Chicola is not with us this week because he had a baby. He had a baby. His wife had a baby. And the baby's name is Louie. Is that correct? That's correct. Isn't that the sweetest name for a little baby you ever heard of is Louie? So many congratulations yep. to Colin. But maybe Jennifer can find for us in Colin's stead the clip where Hunter Biden defensively speaks of his art, which I just. That was. Is just. Mwah. Just amazing. So take a listen to that. Let me state as clearly as I can. My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad, and certainly not as an artist. So Hunter Biden being offended that people think that Joe Biden helped him with his art business. Also, hardest hit, the poor little girl who he fathered with a woman in Arkansas who gets a cut of his art sales. I've seen Hunter Biden's art, and it's obvious no one was helping him with that. It is, it is very obvious that he was doing that on his own. Why this person cannot go away, if you want to defy the subpoena, 
face the consequences, fine. But on the criminal charges that he's facing, plead guilty to something, go away, go to, and by the way, if he goes to prison, he's not going to Oz, right? He's not going to some supermax somewhere. If he goes to prison, he's going to go to federal prison and he'll be in protective custody because he's the president's son. So like, take your bounce, do your six months or whatever, and help your dad out. Jeez Louise. We now turn to Israel Hamas, which we're going to we're going to come back to and domestic anti-Semitism. But I wanted to highlight an excellent New York Times story by Mark Mazzetti and Ronan Bergman. And Ronan Bergman has written a fantastic history of the Mossad and, and is a really good reporter. And that piece is buying quiet inside the Israeli plan that propped up Hamas. And in the piece, he talks about the conscious decision of Israeli leaders over the past couple of decades, chiefly Benjamin Netanyahu, to keep money flowing from Qatar into Gaza, millions of dollars a month, because he made the calculation that having two competing nodes of authority in the the Palestinian the Palestinian authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza would help him duck out of having to, you know, negotiate a Palestinian state and so they report the money from Qatar had humanitarian goals like paying government salaries in Gaza and buying fuel to keep a power plant running. But Israeli intelligence officials now believe that the money had a role in the success of the October 7th attacks, if only because the donations allowed Hamas to divert some of its own budget toward military operations. Separately, Israeli intelligence has long assessed that Qatar uses other channels to secretly fund Hamas's military wing, an accusation that Qatar's government has denied. Um, It's just a very, very interesting story about the bad decisions by Israeli short-term thinking politicians that that led to this. Do you know what it reminded me of was Nixon and welfare. So in a desire to quell urban unrest in the United States after he became president, Nixon and, you know, Patrick Moynihan talked about this and has been much discussed here in the building of the American Enterprise Institute over the years. But Nixon's basic thinking was just pump welfare money out into these cities to buy quiet himself, right? We we can we can tamp down civic unrest by doing this. And of course, what do you what do you buy? You buy longer term trouble, right? When you when you engage in this kind of basically dollar diplomacy or payola, you're just you're building a bigger problem for later. And I thought this was a great report. It was really good. And the next one was not so good. Less good. Less good from the New York Times. Seizing. I mean the headline is, as fury erupts over campus anti-Semitism, conservatives seize the moment. Republicans have been attacking elite universities for years. After a tense congressional hearing last week, many on the left are joining them. And this is like a sort of paint by numbers, you know, it's fill almost, in the blank. It's almost pouncing. It's so They're seizing so hard, they're, they're almost pouncing. It starts... For years, conservatives have struggled to persuade American voters that the left-wing tilt of higher education is not only wrong, but dangerous. I mean, the lead is not right, okay? Conservatives have not struggled to persuade voters that higher education is in a bad place because it's a politically toxic sewer. The American public broadly believes that. 
they've struggled to persuade the New York Times, which is now being forced to cover this stuff and to admit things are kind of bad on university campuses. And that is the premise of the whole article. But they are loath to admit only that now the New York Times is forced to cover this. And the idea that I the, basically, and I, I don't want to impugn the motives of Nick Confessori who wrote it, but the it what it reads like is he's saying to Democrats, you're only helping Republicans. Why are you do, basically, why are you doing this? You're you're aiding and abetting Republicans who are attacking these institutions like Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman and others who swung swung the axe here that they're it, it's it's he's it reads like and I'm not saying this was the intention, a calling out of Democrats who are helping Republicans to both seize and pounce. The next piece is in a similar vein, which is the the New York Times report about the billionaire hedge fund uh, manager Bill Ackman, who's been very vocal on Twitter, calling out Harvard, his alma mater, for its behavior um, and its governance in the wake of October 7th. And the headline is, Bill Ackman's campaign against Harvard followed years of resentment. The billionaire investor has mounted a high-profile battle against Harvard President Claudine Gay over anti-Semitism and threats to Jewish students on campus, comma, but long-held personal grudges play a part too. Really? This is a, this is a vendetta? This, uh, is, this is a that pretext? Is what, that is what the piece suggests. And yeah, it's amazing. It's pretextual. It's amazing. Uh, amazing. You know Should what we else? get to cable news? You know what else is going to be amazing? All the money Tucker Carlson makes at $9 a month from the people who are going to subscribe to his new channel. And a, a interesting read here from Puck, from Dylan Byers at Puck, talking about the economics of subscription streaming. And we went through what I'll call like the Substack era. I'll call the Substack era 2016 to 2020, 2018 to 2020, where it was like everybody's going to be able to have their own thing and everybody's going to be able to monetize this stuff. $9 a month is quite a lot of money when you get right down to it for people. At the dispatch, we know that's true because that's basically what the dispatch is asking people to pay to be subscribed to the dispatch. And the dispatch offers a bunch of stuff. I don't know what Tucker Carlson's going to offer on his channel and what's available. And maybe people will find that it's worth $9 a month. But that's a high price point. That's that's a lot. That's a lot of dough. And as the as we've learned with Substack and with other places, there is a relatively speaking there. There are some hard limits on the size of the audience for people. And and by the way, the people who will pay that kind of money aren't necessarily Tucker Carlson's core audience. Right. The people who will pay a hundred hundred bucks a year or whatever are not necessarily the, the, the core audience because these are going to be, I would assume, and you tell me, I would assume the Tucker reach is for younger, right? And and very online, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe it's there, but to make, I don't know what Tucker Carlson was making in his last year at Fox. Well, I don't think his goal is to recreate the Fox 
Well, no, 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 no. I don't. But but I'm just as as a as a benchmark. If if the last year at Fox, let's say, he was making twenty million bucks. I don't know what he was making, but let's say it's twenty million dollars. That would be a lot of nine dollars a month that you would have to have before you could get to half of that. And so, there you have it. All right. You gave us like you don't think it's going to be a big financial hit, but what is your take on the attempt to? He was do he was doing his stuff on X. Right now he's launching an actual company that's gonna like you know stream. Is that going to be? You think it'll be a success? I think as as Megyn Kelly's success demonstrates, having a platform is helpful, right? So she ended up partnering with Sirius yeah. XM. And having a platform is helpful because it's a reliable place for people to find you and there is some some brand attachment to it. But look, Ben Shapiro and company got in early and pushed hard to build a whole brand around whether it's the Daily Wire. Yeah. So they built a whole thing and, and they've continued to look for ways to monetize with lifestyle stuff and a movie studio and looking for more and more ways to get more saturation. I, you know, for for Carlson, the he has devoted followers who love his scandalized, outraged takes and all of that stuff. To get people to spend $9 a month, though, as Shapiro's experience demonstrates, you have to offer them a lot of stuff, mm. right? You have to really have, as we try to do at the dispatch, a a wide a broad offering of all of this stuff. I don't think you can get nine dollars a month for daily rants from Tucker Carlson. You'd have to have a lot more stuff because in the end, when your signature like Tucker Carlson's signature move is what? The the rant, the outraged rant. Like and you, people share them on social media all the time. Like here, he's going off. He's going crazy on this. He's attacking this. He's he's going wild. That's good viral content, but I don't know that that's foundational for the kind of community that you build online. So he would have to. This here's a good question. They raised uh, fifteen million dollars. I read to yep. to get this started. Yep. Who do you hire if you're Tucker Carlson? Right. By the way, did you see the thing about Vivek Ramaswamy micturating during saw. his... I saw. Just amazing. Congratulations. He was doing a Twitter spaces and didn't know, didn't remember that he was miked before. And for, for Gen Xers, he did the naked gun where he wore his microphone into the bathroom and then urinated. But also in that was Alex Jones. So it was like this... Star Wars bar, like this real, ugh, like just a, un, an unsavory, kind of an unsavory space. Anytime you're bringing Alex Jones into the party, you're, you're, you're in a pretty bad neighborhood. And so the question for Carlson is, who, who do you hire? Who do you bring in? And if you are going in an Alex Jonesian direction, then, and this is something that you raised early on after his departure from Fox, you, now you're limited, Right. Because if you're going over there, yeah, you can get super saturation users. You can get the, the the real cranks and weirdos. But your ability to affect the conversation, which is something that right. has right. has financial value, but also just has currency, makes you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. When you're hanging out with Alex Jones or whatever, then you're then there's a hard stop and you become sort of like, you know who's good at this? Steve Bannon. 
Steve Bannon is good at skirting the line of deplorability to a sufficient degree that he can, the stuff that he says on his podcast or whatever it is, can cross over and make, go into the national news cycle, right? People will, I find it funny, but people consistently, the New York Times, major outlets, on his podcast, Steve Bannon said X about what Donald Trump did or whatever. You lose that, I think, if you if you get too far afoul of the line. Up next. You're a man. You're a dude. And I blame you for this. I blame you for the failure. Charles Barkley yep. and Gail King premiering on their CNN show premiered. Jennifer, get and, your bleep button ready. Yeah, and it did not rate well. So this and is this is a show you were very excited I about. I was so excited about. Charles Barkley with Gail King, is that right? Yeah. And it's called King Charles. Get it? On CNN. He said, F those Nielsen people. And he said, this is to my people at CNN, my team who puts on the King Charles show, who puts the King Charles show together. Barkley told Ernie Johnson on their podcast, The Steam Room. An article came out that our ratings weren't great, but I want to tell my team, man, these Nielsen people are the biggest clowns in the world. Name me one person you know with a Nielsen box. I'm with him. I'm with him. And also, I mean, look, Chris Licht, the former CNN president, was the guy who wanted them, who was the patron of this show. Of course the show is going to go to crap when, when Licht leaves. But it's also once a week and it's on what? I know. It's on I what know. night? Wednesday? I, but... I still I still wanted to succeed. Well, I, I think he's a, a totally charming, engaging human being. I don't find her to be particularly I interesting. Agree. But he's a fascinating he's a fascinating person. Here's awful announcing. As measured by Nielsen, the premiere of King Charles averaged five hundred and one thousand viewers in its ten PM Eastern time East Coast time slot on CNN last week. The number was slightly ahead of the 474,000 November average for CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillip, which usually airs in that window, but paled in comparison to the network's cable competitors, Fox News and MSNBC. But again, those matters, those numbers don't matter to Barkley. Right. I'm sure they don't matter. I'm sure they don't matter to him at all. The the putting lifestyle content on cable news is hard, right? CNN has tried this a, a lot of different ways over the years, but like unless you're going to do news and politics i think i think and also that's a wretched time slot 10 p.m. once a week on a wednesday i mean it's not a bad day of it's, the week it's hard to build a real following cuz nobody can keep track of like what day is it and you know yeah all right chris you put in this licked of arabia yes item yes very much so this w- this is I think Puck again, yes. yes. So Chris Licht, the other Chris, as as we once knew him, is getting ready for his comeback. And here is, this is Dylan Byers, who says, so while Elon Musk telling, Elon Musk, <laughs> telling Iger to go blank himself, dominated the news emanating from Andrew Ross Sorkin's Steelbook conference, most media obsessives were preoccupied by another storyline. Licht emerged at the event under the banner of his own company, Licked Media, mm. formerly incorporated in 2017. His presence in the audience was registered publicly on stage as Sorkin asked David Zasloff to comment on Licht's tumultuous tenure at CNN. 
Great guy, talented man. Chris is a good friend, Zaz said. There are a lot of great days. There are a lot of tough days. Very true. Very true. Then Lick's old boss offered something more cryptic. Chris is going to have a lot of great chapters, and hopefully some of those will be with Warner Brothers. Mmm. Mere moments after Zaz left the stage, the trades teased a potential reunion for Licht and WBD, Warner Brothers Discovery. Have we heard the last of Chris Licht or? No, of course we haven't heard the last of Chris Licht. He's a young guy, but I don't think he's going to be going back to Warner you, Brothers you Discovery don't think anytime so? soon. I don't think so. All right. All right. This this brings us to our sports section. Oh, yes. Where I don't even know how to pronounce this person's name. Shohei Otani. Okay. Signed a $700 million contract, but he's only getting paid $2 million a year. Wow, I feel terrible for this but person. W- but will you acknowledge that you saw this story come over the transom at some point this week? You were made aware that such a story like this existed. Yeah, for my... Wall Street I Journal see, News alert. I can see how scintillating I can see how scintillating you you find this, but the amount of coverage I think Nate Moore will back this up. The amount of Shohei Otani coverage has been unlike even, and it's it's I guess it's baseball, so it's a different kind of fandom. Baseball fandom is nerdier than basketball fandom, but this has been certainly on par with the LeBron James. Will LeBron James go back to Cleveland? Will he da 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 blah, 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 blah. But what has made this the most interesting media story is that the baseball nerds, who are also frequently finance nerds, it just, the world's collided, and the amount of coverage around Shohei Otani, so I know you're dying to know this, but here's the deal. Okay. Shohei Otani is the Babe Ruth of his day. He can both pitch and hit, and he can do both okay. extraordinarily well. He can't pitch for the next season or two because he had a surgery to fix something. But he, as a as a hitter alone, he'd be extraordinarily valuable. Two million dollars a year is very little money for a future Hall of Famer. I guess if we can now say a future Hall of Famer. He's played enough seasons, but Otani has decided that what he will do is defer almost all of the seven hundred million dollars the Los Angeles Dodgers are going to pay him. Okay. Till the end of a 10-year contract. Why is he doing that? He's doing that so that the L.A. Dodgers will be able to keep him under, they will not have to have that money apply against their salary cap. So they'll have Ah. all kinds of money to hire other baseball players so that they can have a great team. Because what? Would, yeah, but what happens in the later years? He gets a balloon payment at the end after 10 years. But then how does that affect their salary cap in that year it, there's uh, in the future there is a yeah the, the the basically the the los angeles dodgers are mortgaging a future season or two okay because they're gonna so have, they have to get rid of all their good players or pay this massive luxury like what whatever it is it will the the pain is coming now what the dodgers have been able to could, do could the players could the good players they hire say you don't have to pay me any salary for this one year. Yeah, the you year could, that yeah, you could work Otani out some deal. His balloon. Well, this is like funny business. It I is totally this funny is business. Re- but and, very interesting. And the Dodgers will be able to, because of interest rates doing what interest rates are doing, the Dodgers will be able to park. It, it won't be. It won't be that it's free. But if they park, I think it's like four hundred million dollars now. That they will have, they'll, they'll be able to make the balloon payment in ten years, so they can park the money 
and 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 it won't the pain won't be the same in 10 years. And Otani, by the way, lest you feel too bad for Shohei Otani, his annual I don't feel bad for him. Lest you feel too terrible for this young man, his annual endorsement deals come out to about $50 million. So in addition to the two million, the meager two million dollars he's going to be scraping by with from the Dodgers, he'll have another fifty million dollars <laughs> in endorsements to, to to get by. I just think he should remember that the Dodgers he should have gone to the St. Louis Cardinals is what I think Shohei Otani should remember. All right, Chris, a tipster oh, yeah. pointed this out to me. The Washington Post reported on Tuesday. Is it? Yes, Tuesday. Today's Thursday. Monumental, comma, Yunkin announced deal to move Caps Wizards to Virginia, rendering the show a 20,000-seat arena, practice facilities for the Wizards and Capitals, expanded eSports facilities, a performing arts venue, fan plaza, and more. And the piece reads, the owner of the Washington Wizards and Capitals has reached a non-binding agreement to move the teams from downtown D.C. to a future arena in northern Virginia as soon as 2028, shaking the regional sports landscape and teeing up a sharp debate among local and state lawmakers who could make or break the deal. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and Ted Leonsis, owner of Monumental Sports and Entertainment, announced the proposal Wednesday standing on a dirt lot in Alexandria's Potomac Yard neighborhood, where they hope a $2 billion, 12-acre mixed-use complex will rise. And a tipster said to me, this is a huge deal for the city of Washington, D.C., which is losing all of the revenue that would come from having these major sports teams. And these negotiations obviously were ongoing for months. If not before this. years. How did the Washington Post only report on this? Days before the 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 magnitude of the failure here speaks to a lot of the problems that the city of Washington has and its local media has. Have you ever gone to a concert or a game of any kind at the Capital One Arena? Yes. How would you describe the vibe in Chinatown these days in Washington, D.C.? Depressing. Super depressing. Crimey, grimy. Crimey. Crimey, yeah. grimy, closed down. Yeah. So once upon a time, so Capital One Arena, which is right across from the National Portrait Gallery, and it was the in the 90s and in the aughts, there was going to be this revitalization of Chinatown, and it was going to do it was going to do all this stuff, and that substantially held true until maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, and then you could feel the slide, you could feel the slip, and you can see drug addicts laying on the street. And you could, the the closed down storefronts and just the the failure energy, and post COVID it it is you know bleak in that part of town. There's a movie theater which unbelievably remains open in the yeah. same complex. And when I take my children to go to the movies there or to a game or a concert or something at Capital One, and by the way. What are you paying to go to a Washington Capitals game? What are you paying? I mean, obviously, you're not rooting for the Washington Capitals. But what are you paying to go? I've never been to a Bullets game. I'm sorry, Wizards. My my apologies. To an NBA game there. But, you know, it's expensive. This is really expensive stuff. And you're asking people to come in from the suburbs 
and go to this place and it's just dumpy, right? It's just, it feels, it feels unsafe and it feels gross. So this speaks to a problem for who? Muriel Bowser, the mayor of the District of Columbia, who is struggling mightily to deal with crime wave and all of the problems in D.C. Where was Muriel Bowser? Where has she been? Very concerned about the climate. She has been at the Global Climate Change Summit and getting lots of coverage in The Washington Post for her role in helping, you know, the the, the huge carbon footprint of the District of Columbia with all of its big manufacturing businesses, population 500,000. So she got coverage for that, that one of the core components of Washington. So, you know, what makes Washington different than other cities other than having the government here, unlike a lot of small cities, Washington has one of everything. They have a baseball team. They have, So that's what we, we would call those, Nate, the big four, baseball, basketball, football, and hockey. And for a town of 500,000, having one, uh, so Boston has that as a fairly small city, smallish city, but like, you know, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, other comparably sized cities to Washington don't have all, don't typically have all of them. And Washington, D.C. has all of them. So the Washington Post not only missed this story, to your point, but in the coverage of its city, and this is why I want to talk about Matty Glacius's piece from his substack, Slow Boring, where he discusses the strike at the Washington Post. Did you follow the strike, the, the one-day walkout yes. at the Washington so, Post? And actually, the my, my tipster mentioned the large possibility that the strike contributed to the Post completely missing this story. What should... I know that the Washington Post... Well, let me just read you a little from Iglesias and his smart piece. Because the journalism industry is so high profile relative to its economic significance, the business of journalism tends to attract a lot of bad takes. On the one hand, people who don't like the product for various ideological reasons want to attribute any economic struggles to their often somewhat imagined political beefs with writers. On the other hand, because the average person working in journalism is to the left of the average American, there's a lot of internal disdain for the idea of taking the basic of taking basic business issues seriously. Last week, for example, the Washington Post Union called for a one-day work stoppage as part of its efforts to secure a better deal for its workers. I fully support, says Iglesias, the right to bargain collectively. And as a writer myself, I want everyone in the industry to secure high pay and good working conditions. That said, the Washington Post loses tons of money. It's true that Jeff Bezos is a very wealthy person and he could sell shares of Amazon to cover losses indefinitely if he wanted to. But rich guy covers our losses is still a business model. And you'd still need to think of some way to make the model work. After all, why would Jeff Bezos want to do that? He's often accused falsely, I think, of having the Post as a kind of stealth, deep lobbying play, when in fact, the Trump administration sought to punish Amazon financially for the Washington Post coverage. But certainly the Post could try to configure itself as a publicity arm for Bezos's personal interests, and that could be reason for him to keep covering its losses. Or they could pitch themselves as a charitable, uh, charitable undertaking that wins him esteem in the eyes of people he cares about. Or they could try to be profitable or at least break even. But these are all business models. Here's the thing. I don't think the Washington Post knows what it is. I don't think it knows. I, yeah. I don't think it knows what it wants to be. I don't certainly don't think it wants to be the newspaper for the city of Washington. I certainly don't think it wants to be that. And the the blown coverage of this huge story, 
which is was everybody as I as I traveled around yesterday in town, everyone was talking about the stunning, surprising loss of two professional sports franchises. Whether you care about sports or not, this is a big marker on the road to decline, right? This is a a big marker, just as it was when the Redskins. I'm sorry. I'm getting all my I'm 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 all dated references on my Washington sports teams today. When the Washington football team left RFK in the district and went to its garbagey home near Six Flags in Maryland, the the loss of sports teams are markers of decline. And the Post blew this story and was instead focusing on climate coverage, which is not on its beat. So, like, get it together, Washington Post. Your city needs you. I am not confident that they will get it together. Well, despite your it, uh, it would be it would entreaties. It would be help. It would be helpful if they did. But um, speaking Chris, of the content people crave, yes, Atlanta, John, this brings us to our style section, and. I loved this New York Times article. The headline, the headline is so good. Headline is losing hair, comma, gaining followers. Hair loss influencers on TikTok say they are destigmatizing a common insecurity. Critics say they're cashing in on a vulnerable audience. And this is all about the balding men who go on TikTok to talk about their problems. Zeph Sanders was 20 when his hair began to fall out. As it thinned from the density of astroturf to spare wisps, he hid his head under a beanie before logging on to play video games on the live streaming platform Twitch. I started getting people in the comments like, bro, where's your hair? Mr. Sanders, now 27, sat on a recent video call from his home in Orange County, California. I felt a little bit more insecure as the day went on. Last year, Mr. Sanders allowed a glimpse of his bare scalp in a video he posted to TikTok. It took off, eventually passing 4 million views. Hundreds of commenters suggested supposedly miraculous regrowth methods, which Mr. Sanders began trying out in his windowless bathroom, with his iPhone camera rolling. A year later, he has sprouted a fine fuzz across his crown and 600,000 new followers on TikTok. His haters haven't gone anywhere. Bro, give up, one wrote on a recent video, adding the crying, laughing emoji. He's among a crop of influencers who have built a devoted who have built devoted online platforms around losing their hair or more to the point, trying not to. It's I'm here to tell you it's tough. I just did these uh, focus groups in Iowa. And when I look at my when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, you're you know, it's thin, baby, but you're all right. You still got hair. You're still in you're still in the game. You're still you're still part of the hair community. And then for the focus group, one of the shots was an overhead shot behind me. And it's made worse. And I know this will sound like rationalizing on my part, but as my hair gets grayer and lighter, it looks even thinner from the top. And I look like George Costanza in this in this overhead shot. And I was I despaired. It 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 caught me for a moment. And it, and it hurt my feelings. So I don't think I want to have a TikTok channel where I dwell on my hair daily. You can leave it to the influencers already. But I don't want to color my I don't want to color my hair. I don't want to do it. And for people who are on TV, once you start coloring your hair, you're stuck. Right. And then you end up with the and I won't name any names. But you see these guys who are 70 years old in Washington, D.C. with jet black hair or blonde hair. And you're like, guys, 
I don't think that how any of that works. And I'm too lazy and too vain in the other direction to submit myself to hair coloring. Sorry. And probably right. I'm probably hurting our reach with my my gray thinning hair. I could be doing more for us. Well, I'm coloring my hair. And, oh, okay. You know, well, doing that's all right. that, so we I, average I, out. It's got it. Like with our size, if we average yeah, out, exactly. it's just one normal head of hair. Okay. So this also, you know, we're getting close to Christmas, so we had to do this in style. The strangest toys on wish list this year. This and is something. It's about a toy. It says it's part Build-A-Bear and part Easy Bake Oven. Such is the alchemy of Cookies Makery, one of the Stranger Toys released ahead of the holiday season this year. Combining elements of Build-A-Bear and the Easy Bake Oven, the toy has beguiled children and adults with its ability to seemingly transform a glob of mush into a warm, dessert-scented creature (sighs) resembling a dog, cat, or rabbit. You're a warm, dessert-scented creature. Jennifer Jack, 35 recently bought a cookies makery for her daughter after they saw a commercial for it on TV. She was like, I want that, said Ms. Jack, who lives in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And I looked at it and I'm like, that looks weird. You got to click on the article, though, to see these. You basically like bake a stuffed animal. I'm buying one for us right now, even as we speak. Okay. And we'll obviously, if if we can get it, we'll obviously, we'll... We'll, we'll do a test. We'll, we'll do a test. I'm having it. And it's only $34.99. We will do a test. Oh, they're sold out. Wow. People want to put their pets in ovens. That's what my takeaway here is there is a American desire to put their pets in ovens, and I find it disconcerting. We'll look. We'll, I'll look on the black market Internet. Don't worry. I'll see, what, I'll see what's out there. Okay. Chris, hmm. that brings us to our obsessions. We break down the stories we can't get out of our head. And Chris, mine is the president of Harvard's plagiarism scandal. We learned from a couple of different sources this week, starting with Chris Rufo at the Manhattan Institute, who did a couple of tweets about this, but then Arian's, Aaron Sabarium at the Free Beacon with a big expose into Claudine Gay's, you know, plagiarism that she has more problems than her, you know, spineless leadership of the university. But what I thought was the most interesting part of this story was a New York Post story. Okay. And the New York Post reported, Harvard covered up secret plagiarism probe into President Claudine Gay during anti-Semitism storm, Dash threatened the Post. And the day after the Beacon story ran, the Harvard Board of Trustees, or the Harvard Corporation, which is essentially its board, put out a statement saying they fully support President Claudine Gay, who has proactively requested to have a few modifications made to some of her scholarship. When in reality, we learn, according to this New York Post story, the Post had contacted Harvard and requested comment on her plagiarism in October. And in response to the Post's request for comment, gotten a 15-page letter from a high-profile defamation attorney saying, we will sue you for defamation if you publish this piece. The Post was bullied out of publishing the piece 
And in between October and December, Harvard conducted its own investigation. And this is this was Gaze being real proactive about cleaning up her scholarship. And so the Harvard Corporation, which came out and said it totally supports this president, their statement in defense of her was a bald faced lie saying Mm. that she had proactively requested this cleanup and so on and so forth. So I thought the backstory here was incredibly interesting about how the news media was tipped off to this. The news media tipped Harvard off to this problem. They bullied the media out of publishing a story in October. The story eventually got out in December. And this is all, by the way, amid a free speech scandal where behind the scenes, Harvard is threatening a publication for defamation over a true story. Just a fascinating Hmm. big picture story. Uh, Okay, my obsession, it's a light obsession, but it is mine. So it's not fair to use the Daily Mail of London and its headlines to draw larger conclusions about the state of the media. But this one uh, made me laugh. Quote, utterly terrifying, close quote. Shock as News Channel announces it'll become first to use AI anchors, all caps, from next year. I have had quite enough of AI scaremongering and anxiety. And as I talked about last week or the week before, it's what's his name? Who's the who's the goofus who is the chat GPT? Who's I always want to say Sam Bankman Freed because he gives off similar energy. What's the guy? He quit or he got fired and then they made them hire him back. Sam Altman, who wears a child's baseball cap and has many, many strong opinions. The the anxieties around AI. So here's the Daily Mail of London. Journalists have branded plans for artificial intelligence news anchors utterly terrifying as an L.A. based channel looks to, to look set to launch them next year. Channel One is using the using the tech to create digital humans <gasps> to provide updates about what is happening across the world. The station wants to launch them on free ad-supported streaming TV, including apps such as Crackle, Tubi, or Pluto, as early as February. Utterly terrifying. Do you find that utterly terrifying? No. Are you utterly terrified no. by the fact that Max Headroom? You're too young for it, but Max Headroom was a 1980s show about ha- just such a thing as that a a digital uh, news anchor, a digital television personality. Here's what I know. There was a time where reading words that other people wrote could somehow be considered journalism. And you could somehow work in the news business being a dummy who read words written by other people out of a teleprompter. That has not been the case for quite a while, right? If you want to... You, you have to know something. You have to be smart. You have to you, you have to add value, right? Lester Holt can't— Oh, my gosh. Chris. What? I get the point you're driving at. Yeah. But there are so many dumb people who work in the news business. I, you, you ain't lying. You ain't kidding. Okay. But, but yes, I get the point you're driving at. But Lester Holt can't just say, like, I didn't read anything. I don't know anything, and I'm just going to show up, and they're going to put it in the teleprompter, and I'm going to do it. I'm not saying there aren't people who still do that. But as a sustainable model and, and something that, that people will pay attention to and do, the, the human robot, the human newsreader robot is, has been a defunct for some time. Let AI, you, 
let AI, let channel one have AI bots saying, I'm just enough with the, enough with utterly terrifying, enough with utterly terrifying people. Chris, that brings us to my oh, yeah. favorite time of the week. Oh, yeah. Reader mail. And we have a note from Austin Bird who says, Eliana and Chris, great work at the debate. I can't think of an appropriate way to provide context for the art to the article below, but the Susanna Gibson absurdity continues. Politico does a great job not asking any clarifying questions or providing a shred of context regarding the fact that she and her husband willingly and purposefully posted live streams of their sexual acts. And this is a Politico piece by Alex Burns. The headline is her online sex life was exposed. She lost her election. Now she's speaking out. It wasn't actually exposed that, which is what the, which is what Austin is getting at. She exposed it to everybody. And Austin continues, the attempt to defend in a very weird and roundabout way, the conduct of Anthony Weiner is as laughable as it is entertaining. Resignation in disgrace isn't due to novelty factor. It's due to disgraceful conduct on becoming to the office. I continue to live in a state of disbelief over the lack of expectations for conduct in high office. Now, Austin, thank you, because we're going to get to this in my favorite item, which is actually a critique of this piece. So we're going to get to that. But first, we have a letter from JP who writes, Dear Eliana and Chris, love the show. The only paper serving all of Long Island and its four congressional districts is Newsday. Circulation of about 435,000. On December 2nd, they published an editorial likening George Santos to Jay Gatsby and seeking to draw the moral lessons to be learned from the Santos episode. Lots of notes about vigilance, background checks, etc., but only one sentence referencing Newsday's own industry. Political leaders of both parties must do a better job of vetting potential candidates. Similarly, the press and public should look under the hood before buying. Here, here. I find this astonishing since this huge regional paper did not pick up or publish doubts about Santos raised very early on by a local 20,000 circulation community weekly paper at the North Shore Leader. The leader received an award for its reporting from the New York Press Club. After the explosive post-election New York Times story in December 2022, the leader angle got a little notice in the Post, New Yorker, and HuffPost. One has to think that pre-election investigation and coverage in Newsday would have destroyed Santos's election chances. I rather think that what was needed from Newsday was not a meditation but an apology to voters. Annoying, too, is the editorial's assertion that constituent service to residents of Santos's district ended with his expulsion. That is not true. His district staff reports to the clerk of the House until a successor is elected and sworn in. JP. Keep up the good work. Mystery writer JP, who whose real identity we do not know. JP, very well said. Very I I I can add nothing to it except for my hearty thanks for your passing it along. And Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. When I am forced to say something nice, but as always, you shall lead us by your shining light. Shanaz Habib writing for writing at the Atlantic. So Shanaz Habib is the author of a new book called Airplane Mode, an irreverent history of travel. This piece was so good that I bought the book. I bought it because it was so good. And it is the Atlantic doing what the Atlantic should do and can do so well 
bringing us writers who we might not know. And her description of being a new mother, it's so well done. It's so good. This piece is just excellent. I'll read you just one passage. Finally, one bleak winter morning, some elemental instinct inside me made me get out of the apartment with the baby in a sling and walk to the bus stop. It was going toward the riverfront in Brooklyn. When we got there, though, I realized that I didn't particularly want to be there. Where I wanted to be was on the bus. Soon this became a habit. I didn't care which bus or where it was going. Days from lack of sleep, I would walk out of my building with the baby snug against me. If there was a bus at the corner, I would get on it. If not, I would walk to the next corner and catch whichever one happened to stop. The bus itself became my destination, a place to sit, a window to look through as the world streamed by, offering itself without demanding anything. I didn't know it then, but I was relearning how to test my boundaries in this strange new world of parenting. Until then, I had gone years without riding a bus. If I needed to get anywhere, I took the subway. Like many New Yorkers, I had figured out exactly where to wait on the train platform so I could exit efficiently when going to work or coming home. Buses tended to be slow and plodding, beholden to traffic. But now, with a baby bundled next to my chest, I was slow and plodding, too. We were perfect for each other. It's just it's just really good. It's really sweet. It's really well-written. And so I'm, I give the Atlantic a lot of grief, but this is the kind of stuff that the Atlantic does really well. So thank you for sharing it. Well, my favorite piece is from The Spectator, and it is a critique of the Politico piece by Alec Burns on Susanna Gibson. The headline is, The Politico Story Covering for Susanna Gibson is More Embarrassing Than Anything She Ever Did. And it reads, My entire life was rocked on September 11th when the article ran, Gibson says, Coburn can imagine. Truly the worst thing to happen on that date. <laughs> Burns characterizes Gibson as being, quote, captured in a recorded video performing sex acts online with her husband and says that a, quote, opponent exposed her private digital life to the public. Burns neglects to mention that the person who recorded and published the video to the public originally was Gibson herself. She regularly streamed her and her husband to anyone who chose to watch on the porn site Chatterbait, even after she announced her run for office. It's a, a period written by the pseudonymous Cockburn, who is the Spectator's American scampish columnist. And it's a real it's a torch. <laughs> it's a real torch. Well, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.